This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Rupa Lakaraju, CFO Mana, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 338. is about 1,200 people, um, and you know we're continuing to grow and making sure as we're placing those investments and we're continuing to grow that we understand, uh, first and foremost, you know, what, what are the trade-offs that we're making when we're making those investments, and then secondly, what do those returns need to be? So, so, so we need to continue supporting that. At the same time, I need to get my team, which um, is relatively new, kind of gelled together and, and working and supporting the business. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. This is Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Sydney Carey, CFO of Aptis. Sydney retraces her steps for us up the FP&A ladder inside a number of big-name Silicon Valley firms. You'll discover what she believes Aptis now has in store for her thoughtful and carefully executed finance leadership career. We speak to Sydney after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Sydney, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And as always, uh, we ask our, our guests to begin by looking back and sharing with us uh, what some of the career experiences they feel prepared them for a CFO role. Sydney, what would you share with us? So I think going back kind of earlier in my career, I was at a company called Network Associates, which was a combination at the time of McAfee and Network General. And we did um, several acquisitions. Um, I was on the McAfee side when we acquired Network General, which was actually bigger in revenue and bigger in employees, but um, not as big in market cap. So it was almost a merger. And I think going through that experience and then the hyper growth after that uh, really you know, made us have to recreate a company into a new company and really rebrand ourselves. And I think that was a very important part of, of my um, experience that helped prepare me to become a leader. Um, you know, then I would also then characterize the first time it was after that experience that I had to go out and raise money from the VC community. 
And in doing that, um, you know, you really learn when you're out there raising the money. Uh, you kind of think you know what, what they like to see and you think you know, um, you know, what your business model needs to look like. But when you're out there kind of putting, putting that and valuing the company from these individuals, you actually really do learn a lot. And I was at Pacific Broadband when, when I had to go through that experience. And then, you know, just kind of lastly, I think that, you know, going to TIBCO, which was a public company, I went in as controller, um, and I was not a CPA uh, during a time where we had to be Sarbanes-Oxley compliant. And I think that was in itself very interesting, but I really got exposed to uh, the investors on the public company side and working with the sell-side analysts and the buy side, and uh, clearly that, you know, shaped uh, who, who I became as a CFO. Okay, so w when you do land at Aptis, what is the kind of job that you wanted to create for yourself here? You've already had several uh, tours of duty as a CFO as well and a long tenure at, at TIPCO. Uh, but what, what, what was next? What, what did this offer? I think it offered a couple of things. I mean, first and foremost, the space that, um, you know, we – we address quote to cash, which is the revenue realization kind of functions of a company, um, is really kind of near and dear to a CFO. So I'm working for a company now where I can really be an advocate for the company as a CFO. I can be, um, you know, talk about the, the benefits that our platform will provide to enterprises. And so I think that puts me in a really kind of exciting kind of time in my career to be able to have something so close to me that, that's so important. Um, you know, in addition, you know, I, I came in to kind of get the company to the next level, and, you know, I like doing that. I like building. I like uh, bringing in teams. I like developing the team members that I have when I come on board and really getting the company to the next level um, and to operate, you know, more like a public company. Yeah, can, can we touch on that uh, in terms of your team? Was there any additions that uh, you made, key additions that you've made, and what, what exactly, if you could get more specific with us, how did you envision formulating this team maybe a little differently uh, than it existed? Yeah, you know, often when I come into later stage startups um, or pre-IPO companies, uh, there is kind of a finance leader, and that finance leader has, you know, both functions of – or has all functions kind of underneath them and reporting in. And I pretty quickly come in and, and – um, kind of divide that into two strong pillars, a controllership and an FP&A pillar. And, you know, often I'll take that finance leader and, and we'll discuss what's the best pillar for that individual to move into, um, and, 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 that, and then I divide it up. And, and to me, it's really important to think about uh, your organization with having those pillars. And then underneath each of those two pillars, having strong pillars underneath there as well. And so... Um, you know, it's important, you know, people are, are what, you know, make or break a company. And so having the right organization um, is very important. Here at Aptis, I was also able to have our IT organization, um, which has also been exciting uh, as far as just looking at, at our business and the systems we need to support our business. And so that's also been a focus of mine as well. It seems like from very early in your career, and, I, uh, and I'll make note that you, you went to uh, Stanford University and studied economics, uh, that you had an eye for tech as well as finance. But can you share with us whether there are perhaps other options you evaluated before going down the CFO path? Yeah, you know, I, I did 
uh, get into tech and through the FPNA uh, side of finance. And you know, with that, you know, I really um, enjoyed working for strong technology companies. And I think that if you go back in my career, that's a common denominator for companies that I've worked for. Um, and in addition to that, you know, on the FPNA side, you get kind of immersed in business and business model and how to go to market and how to sell to your customers and how to make your customers happy. And so I think from that standpoint, the operational side of finance uh, came very natural to me. And, you know, I did not go down the CPA path. And, uh, you know, early in my career, I was given an opportunity to be a controller at a private company and really in enjoyed that side of it as well. And, and in software in particular, a lot of the complexity comes around revenue and revenue recognition. And so I was able to, you know, become more of a – uh, expert in that area as I kind of grew into the CFO roles. And so I think for me it was just about, you know, looking at, at, at being in tech and, and kind of having two career paths for myself, kind of a COO type of role or a CFO type of role. And for me, I, I, I really liked the financial element and the discipline around the finance side, and I felt I could combine the operational FP&A um, with that in order to be a very effective leader. Okay, let's find out something about Aptis now. And can you tell us a little bit about the competitive landscape that's out there for Aptis's offerings? And what is it that gives uh, Aptis a competitive edge today? Yeah, so Aptis um, uh, solutions uh, address the quote-to-cash uh, cycle. And we look at that as the middle office. So you have the front office where you have companies such as Salesforce, which address marketing and opportunity management. And then you have the back office, which is typically ERP dominated by Oracle and SAP. And so what you see is there's a whole set of processes in between, which are quote to cash related, that aren't being addressed by an integrated platform. And so today you'll have point products that will try to address segments of, of our space, such as CPQ, configure price quote, or contract management, or billing solutions, but really the value that Aptis brings to our enterprise customers is the fact that we have one unified data platform that can address this entire revenue life cycle of a, of a, of a company. And if you, you think about the revenue cycle, you know, we are, the quote to cash is really the only um, a set of functions that can actually you know, address and increase revenue for our customers. So we feel like we sit in a very exciting space and in an, an area that's, that's just being defined, and we are really the only company that is, is uh, addressing this entire quote-to-cash platform. What would you tell us in regards to the, the metrics that are important to you and what might set you apart from your SaaS peers out there? Yeah, I mean, I do look at, you know, LTV, LTV to CAC, uh, efficiency around the sales organization, but but I also look at um, other metrics. Um, for me, it's about um, kind of on the sales rep side. I look at sales rep uh, performance, uh, time to first deal, um, uh, uh, how how quickly they ramp, um, how how efficient they are. So I look at those sets of metrics on the on the sales sales rep side. How, what's the participation rates? How are they doing against quota? Um, have we set quotas correctly? Um, 
all of that, that, that around the rep. And I think that's a very much a key driver as you think about building a model that I would put in the category of wash, rinse, and repeat, right? And that is, you know, bringing on more reps and having the predictability as to when they're going to become productive and how soon they're going to contribute. And so that to me is a very important set of metrics. And then I would say the other set of metrics that I focus around are all around customer. And that's around um, new customers, how many new customers are we obtaining, what is the average deal size, um, how is that trended or changed over time, um, how many products um, on our platform are they buying. Uh, you know, again, our value being in the, the platform, are they buying just one product? What's driving their sales? Is it, is it dri being driven by CPQ? Is it being driven by CLM? Um, so kind of the key drivers of the sale. I also look at, you know, the expansion and the renewal of my install base. And so, you know, I look at it kind of reps and what's happening with my customers. Is it clear that you're getting more and more visibility into the sales process? Yeah, you know, I think that, that you know, over time, um, yes, tools have gotten better around, you know, you know sales and sales predictability and, and um, automating, automating the process and, and folks following the process. And there's been, I think, a lot of work done with that. Um, I still think that, you know, it gets down to, you know, discipline in the sales organization. Um, you know, some of the, the, the tools that we offer in our integrated platform on Quote to Cash you know, can actually help change rep behavior. If you think about at the time that you're quoting a deal, if you, you know, give a behavioral um, type of application where you say if you quote that deal, you know, five points less, you'll make more money um, on this transaction, that can actually change behavior at the time of quoting and some things like that. So I think now you're starting to see applications combine not only process but also combine um, behavioral changes or behavioral apps. And so I think we're getting into with a whole new era of AI and that, that being in very early days, but, but seeing how that's going to shape and change kind of the, the, these processes um, as we move forward. Um, so I think, you know, within that regard, you know, I think, yes, things are getting better and automated. You know, where I try to help out my sales teams is that, you know, if, if, if we're in a sales cycle and I need to pick up the phone and reach out to the, the key leader and, and help in any way I can. I mean, I like to, again, be there for, for the sales team and feel like a resource for them um, if I can help with it in any, any, um, any capacity on, on getting deals across the finish line. Will you attend uh, a sales meetings, or is there some routine where you, you've attempted to build that relationship uh, or, or, you know, uh, energize it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Me, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll attend the sales kickoffs. Um, you know, I can attend some of the sales uh, mid-quarter or, or end-of-quarter kind of meetings and things like that. But, you know, I think that, that you know, good salespeople find their resources um, is what I've also found. Okay. So we want to ask you uh, for what we refer to as a, a finance strategic moment, uh, which is a a moment of insight, that a strategic insight that you've had along the way during your career call it an aha moment, whatever it might be, but it, it's uh, unique to your role. Because you're a finance leader, you had lines of sight into the organization that allowed you to identify either a risk or an opportunity. What would you share with us? Well, I think I go back to kind of my, my TIBCO years, uh, and I was there for almost 10 years. And as part of that, um, the company – did many acquisitions. Um, some of them were on the larger side for TIBCO. Some of them were very small and kind of strategic tuck-ins. 
And, you know, I think that, I don't know if it was an aha moment, but I think that, you know, what you learn with going through that is that you can, you can have a model when you're acquiring a business kind of really tell you any answer. I mean, you can model out that the business will have a certain growth rate or that, or that it will get synergies or that, you know, you can cut these costs and you'll get this type of accretion and how quickly. And so you can pretty much have a model kind of tell you, tell you any answer you really want to get to. Um, and so I think that as you go through and you do these acquisitions, you know, you really then start to look at the, the softer things, um, such as, you know, what's the team? What's the organization going to look like after the acquisition? How's, how does that fit? What's going to be the alignment? Culturally, are they going to fit or are they not going to fit? Um, so I think that because those are going to be really the drivers of the model, not actually the numbers. And so, you know, even if you're doing a small acquisition and you're counting on that to be a technology tuck-in, well, what does that mean, technology tuck-in? Are you going to retain the key engineers? Are they going to be happy? How is it going to integrate in with your products? And so I think that, you know, again, companies can kind of financial engineer acquisitions, but I do think that, it, that there's a lot more to it when you really get down into, you know, how do you make that acquisition successful long-term in your business. Okay, we want to touch on the uh, talent economy uh, with you. And ordinarily, I just simply ask the question, when it comes to the organization's workforce, what are your priorities as a finance leader? Uh, so I'm really looking for your talent mindset uh, at, at Aptis and how you uh, can help uh, build this workforce and, and come to the right model of compensation. What would you share with us? Well, I think that um, we're a pre-IPO company, so I think that has a set of benefits for folks that want to work in that environment. We're in, we're in an environment now where, where the pay and the, the stock options and, you know, you have to be competitive and you – you have to have a good culture to work for. And so I think that, you know, as companies go through different cycles and they cross different milestones in their in the company's history, you have to kind of keep inventing what kind of company you want to be from a cultural perspective. And so we focus on that as as well as just pure comp and pay and, and also career pathing. I think, you know, you have a lot of younger talent coming into the workforce and and, you know, how do you meet their needs with career pathing and giving them exposure and opportunity? And so, you know, we look at all of that as a broader management team on how to make our employees successful. Okay, we're going to come to, uh, to our mentoring round now where we ask you several questions intended to help inspire and mentor uh, future finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Well, I think that that in there's really a, an appetite for other organizations to have the business partners and the finance business partners um, helping them and assisting them. And so I think that, that from that standpoint, um, you know, there's been always a lot of talk about that, but I think there's a real desire to have that, that finance business partner um, really helping organizations um, as they, they grow and develop. Now, the first time you stepped in uh, to the CFO role, uh, and that was uh, years ago, we're wondering what is that piece of advice you wish someone had shared with you at that time? Oh, boy, that's a tough question. Um, I, my, my first CFO role, I had the opportunity to work for an experienced CEO um, and somebody who, who had a, a lot of perspective around 
around, you know, bigger company, and, and we were a quite small company at the time. And so I think that in that regard, I was very fortunate that I was working for somebody who was experienced and somebody who could, you know, when the, when the board would react, you know, he would be able to balance it out with, you know, oh, Sydney, you know, we just, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to stay the course. And so it was a very, you know, I think having that mentorship um, allowed me first-time CFO to really keep things in perspective. And so uh, for me, that was a very good kind of learning and, and, and training ground for, my, for me. Do you have a personal habit that you believe has contributed to your professional success? I don't think I do, actually. I, don't, I think, you know, I think it's just being a hard worker. I don't think there is a personal habit. I, I, I think it comes down to really hard work and, and being able to prioritize what's the most important thing you can do that day and how can you make the most impact um, in the time that you have at work. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Well, I, I just got recommended a book, and I'm just starting it, um, so it's very early on. But I think it's, you know, I've heard really great things about it, and I'm liking it so far. It's called Great Companies Deserve Great Boards. Um, and I think that um, often as a CFO and an executive leader, you, you want to have that mentorship from a board. I, I am a current board member, and I try to be value-add and helpful. And um, so, so in any event, that's the book I'm starting to read and, and one that I'm excited about. Sydney, as somebody who has built uh, their career rather successfully uh, inside Silicon Valley, a corporate finance career, what uh, I'm wondering how to shed a little more light on how you went about doing this. And uh, let me ask, uh, perhaps, have you relied on recruiters along the way? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, earlier in my career, um, I, I did rely on recruiters. In fact, there's a recruiter that reached out to me for the TIBCO role. Um, and so, and then I think from that, um, you know, you do get introductions either through your contacts in the VC community um, or people you know, um, people that, that know of good companies and where you'd be a good fit. But often even with that, there's, there, there can be recruiters involved. And so you absolutely have to network with the recruiting community um, and, and, and let them get to know you. So, yeah, and the VC community, of course, obviously you've cracked the code there in terms of how to build those types of relationships. You're a known entity. Um, and you mentioned your CEO who seemed to be something of a mentor, and he clearly might have had those relationships as well established. I don't know, but what, is there something that um, for other finance leaders who are looking to say, okay, where do I begin? What would you share with them? Well, I think that, um, you know, I, I was probably fortunate enough in my career that, you know, I, I, I got to McAfee Network Associate through a, a former boss I worked with, and he went down there CFO and brought me in to run operations. Um, and so I think you build those relationships, and, you know, good people follow good people. And I think that's kind of the first uh, kind of set of networking you do. But I think you do broaden out your network. And, you know, I was fortunate when I left Network Associates that it was a very hot time in the in, – in, industry and you know there were a lot of CFO opportunities and I was able to kind of to, to take on an opportunity that ended up um, you know being acquired and acquired for you know a decent a decent price at the time and and then you know kind of leveraging that into the next opportunity but 
but I do think that it's, you know, you have to take the time and the opportunity to really meet with people and, um, and, and then being able to, to have that network. And I, I'm not much for doing kind of the bigger networking events, but I do think that you, you, you do build out your, your base. Your, you find how to build out your own network and, and that you get that network and that, that, um, that, that kind of base of, of people that you get to know and you're able to leverage it into various opportunities. Did you personally ever consider becoming a venture capitalist or going that path or joining one of these firms? Not at, not at this point in my career, um, but, you know, it, it, I think it's a very interesting um, uh, area to be in. I think, you know, you get to see a ton of companies, which I think would be exciting, and a lot of great entrepreneurs. But at this point in my career, it's not something that, that I'd look to do. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We're about to ask Sydney for her 12-month finance leader priorities right after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. We're going to move to our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? So first and foremost, my priority is having my team uh, really come together. I've hired a lot of new people, a lot of new roles, um, have been able to divide roles and hire more specialists down to go deep in those given roles. And um, when you have so many new team members, it's really important that um, we spend time in understanding what everybody's doing and having efficient processes, and bring in the systems that we need to drive key metrics through the organization. Um, and so that's a big priority of mine. Uh, also, you know, Aptis is, is about 1,200 people, um, and, you know, we're continuing to grow and making sure as we're placing those investments and we're continuing to grow that we understand, uh, first and foremost, you know, what, what are the trade-offs that we're making when we're making those investments, and then, secondly, what do those returns need to be? So, so you know, we're at an exciting time in the company with the growth and, I, and, and, and what we're accomplishing, so we need to continue supporting that at the same time I need to get my team which um, is relatively new, uh, uh, kind of gelled together and, and, and working and supporting the business. Sydney Carey, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.